Thank you, Julia. Well done. Appreciate your service to us this morning. How many of you know what the Appalachian Trail is? Good number of you do. The Appalachian Trail is a hiking trail that stretches all the way from northern Georgia all the way into Maine. It's around 2,200 miles long, and our house in Virginia was probably 30, 40 minutes from the Appalachian Trail from a section of it, and uh, I at one point took my son Cole up, and we did a day hike on the trail, and uh, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. But every year, thousands of people start on this trail in northern Georgia in uh, spring, maybe March or April, and they hike the entire length of the trail in one year, all the way from northern Georgia to Maine, and uh, around 2,200 miles, and they end up in Maine and in the fall uh, as it's starting to get colder. But I wanted to show you, here's a picture. Um, There it is. There's a picture of the beginning of the Appalachian Trail in Georgia. Now, if you're starting at this point and you're planning on doing the entire thing, 2,200 miles, there's a certain type of person that who, who does this. There's a certain mentality that it takes to gather your gear together, to get your materials together, and to walk through this little archway and think, I'm going to do 2,200 miles of hiking along this trail. There's a certain mentality of a person who undertakes an endeavor like this. First of all, that's a lot of walking, right? I mean, every day you have to walk 20, 30 miles to be able to do this. That's a lot of walking. Second, you have to carry all of your gear with you. Uh, It's a well-defined trail, but it is a trail, and it goes up mountains and into valleys and across creeks. And so you have to put your gear in your backpack. You have to carry your tent with you if you're going to sleep under a tent, which I would recommend especially in early spring and into fall in Maine. You have to carry your tent with you. You have to carry your sleeping bag with you. You have to carry your food with you. Now, you can stop along the way. There are towns that you can go to off the trail, and you can buy new food um, after several months on the trail, but you have to carry all of that with you in your backpack. The third thing when you start to onto this trail is it's not like this is free from any hazards at all as you're hiking these 2,200 miles. I found a list uh, on the Wikipedia page for this of hazards that are associated with hiking the Appalachian Trail. So consider these. Severe weather, American black bear, tick-borne illnesses, mosquitoes, yellow jackets, biting flies, chiggers, steep grades, limited water, dangerous fordings, diarrhea from water, poison ivy, venomous snakes, And I'm sure there are other challenges that you will face along the way of hiking this. So like I said, it takes a certain person to want to do this, to be able to do this, to have the time to do this. (laughs) You have to be tough. You have to be adventurous. And I think you have to be a little bit insane to undertake something (laughs) like this. No offense to any of you that have done this before in your lives. I think some of those qualities that lead you to begin something like this are the very qualities that you have to maintain and that you have to have throughout your hike if you're going to finish this. Lots of people start this and don't finish every year. That's something that happens. In other words, you have to continue as you began. The way to succeed in covering this entire trail is to maintain the same toughness and adventurousness and insanity that you began with. 
to accomplish this. Now, we've been talking about a journey, and it's a different type of journey than hiking the Appalachian Trail, but this journey is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 10. We're learning about the type of journey that is following Jesus Christ as one of his disciples. Now, as we've been going through this passage and we've been following the disciples on their journey with Jesus from north of Israel down to Jerusalem where he's going to die, we've been learning about discipleship and learning about following Christ. And we've been talking a lot about what it looks like to be on that trail in the midst of the journey. But this morning, we want to sort of back up because the text backs us up and says, okay, what does it look like? What is necessary to begin this journey? What sort of mentality do you have to have to start the journey of following Jesus, of receiving his kingdom? And that's what we want to learn about this week and next week in the stories we're going to study. So open your Bible up to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16 this morning. That's where we'll be. And we're going to do something a little bit different structurally this morning. I typically give you a sort of a statement of what we're going to learn, and then we walk through the passage. And this morning, I want to do the opposite. I want to walk through the passage, and then at the end, I want to give you kind of a statement of what we're going to learn. It's a short passage, and as you, as you study this passage, there's one question that pops out that we'll get to in verse 15. So we're going to give you this question, walk through the passage, and then give you some of the answers to this question. So here's the question this morning. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God as a child? Receiving is talking about starting out your journey as a part of the kingdom, starting out your journey as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of your life as a disciple. Jesus tells us in this passage, you'll see it when we get there in verse 15, that You have to receive the kingdom as a child, and we want to find out what that means. We want to know how we are to begin this journey. How are we to initially respond to the proclamation of the kingdom? What sort of attitude, what sort of mentality are we to have when we hear that Jesus is the king and that his kingdom is advancing? And so that's what we're going to look at, that's what we're going to get to in this passage. But before we get to that question, we have to get ourselves there by understanding the context in which that question comes, and that's verses 13 through 16 here. So last week in, verse, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, we studied this whole interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and ultimately the disciples regarding marriage and divorce. And this little story that we're looking at here in verses 13 to 16 doesn't necessarily follow immediately after that, but Mark puts this story here because both of those stories are about discipleship. This little interaction here between Jesus and the disciples teaches us about discipleship and about how that process of being a disciple begins. So look at verse 13 here. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. So again, we don't know exactly when this happened, but the implication here is that it's the parents of the children. It doesn't say parents, it just says they, but we assume this is the children of the parents, that they're bringing their children to Jesus so that he could bless them by touching them. We've seen Jesus use personal touch many times in the gospel of Mark. He's, he often uses personal touch when he's healing someone. Well, here he's not healing, but he's conveying a blessing to these children by holding them, by hugging them, by touching them, maybe putting his hand on their head and giving them a blessing. And this would not have been atypical during this day. 
People would bring their children to a rabbi, and the rabbi would place his hands on the child and would say a blessing, a prayer over them. It would have been very normal. And so these parents are bringing their children to Jesus to have the same sort of thing happen. But when they bring them, something different happens this time. When they get close to Jesus with their small children, the disciples step in. Look at the rest of verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. The disciples step in almost like security guards. That's the sense that I get as I read this here. Like they're creating a perimeter around Jesus. And they rebuke the parents. This is a strong word that Mark uses here for the way the disciples handle the parents. They rebuke them for bringing their kids to Jesus to get a blessing. Now, why do they do this? The text doesn't say. There are several options. Did they want to keep people from coming to Jesus apart from coming through them? Maybe they were like the gatekeepers to get to Jesus. Did they see the children as a nuisance? You know, they're small. They can be loud and messy. And so they wanted to keep the children away from Jesus because of his position as an esteemed teacher. Whatever the reason, this passage ought to remind you of a passage that we just looked at a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 9. Look back to Mark 9, verse 36. Here, Jesus is teaching the disciples about what it means to be a follower of him. He tells them there to be servants of all. And look at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, Jesus does this here because children are the weakest members of society. And so his point is, as disciples, we are to receive and to do good to those who are the most outcast or the most marginalized in society, and children certainly would have been an example of that here. Now, what's amazing is the disciples were there when this happened. They heard Jesus say this. They heard him use the word receive over and over again, receive with hospitality. They're to receive children And so now in chapter 10, they have the opportunity to act on the instructions of Jesus in chapter 9. They know that he said you're to receive children, and so they have the chance to demonstrate that they're getting it, they're understanding the teaching of Jesus, and they're responding appropriately, and they completely blow it here. They had just heard him say this, and instead of receiving, they rebuke the parents for bringing their children to Jesus. And so Christ responds, in verse 14, with anger, with frustration. He is vexed by what the disciples are doing here. Look at verse 14, the beginning of it. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That's what that word means, vexed. He's frustrated with them. And so because of his frustration, I think he takes the opportunity here to teach them. Look at the rest of verse 14. He was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. He tells them, don't hinder these children. That's the same word that is used back in chapter nine. Remember when the man was casting out demons in the name of Jesus and John tried to hinder him, tried to stop him from doing that. That's the same word that is used here. So the disciples are not getting it clearly. They're not understanding how they're supposed to relate to other people as members of the kingdom, as followers of Christ. They've not gotten the message But Jesus tells them here, don't hinder these children. Don't stop them from coming to me. And here he gives them a reason why. 
They're not supposed to stop the children from coming to him. Look at the rest of verse 14. For, there's his explanation, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, let the children come to me so that I can be close to them, so that I can bless them, because it's to people like this that belong the kingdom of God. Now, we need a little refresher on the kingdom. This is obviously an important theme in Scripture. Jesus came at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark proclaiming the kingdom. You remember that? He announced its arrival through his person and work. And so what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom is this is the message, the reality that God has shown up among his people and his reign, his rule has invaded human history through the person and mission of Jesus Christ and that his rule is advancing and beginning to set things right. You see this demonstrated through Jesus's miracles. Things are made as they're supposed to be through his miracles. He heals sickness. He casts out demons sets things right, and that ultimately through Jesus, God's rule and reign will triumph over evil. It, evil. it begins now through the personal work of Christ, and it's culminated in the future at the end of time. That's the kingdom of God. And so Jesus points out in verse 14 that the kingdom, that rule and reign, participation in that reality belongs to people like these children. They're the ones that participate in the kingdom. Okay, so why? What is it about children? Why does the kingdom belong to people who are like children? That's a great question, and that's what verse 15 answers. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, you guys are good Bible students, so you know that this word truly at the beginning of the verse is significant. When Jesus uses this word, he's about to say something that we ought to sit up and pay careful attention to. We ought to take note of what he's about to say. He's making an important pronouncement here. And he's going to give an explanation for why the kingdom belongs to children, to those who are childlike. Now, he states it negatively here, right? He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So let's flip it around and say it positively. To enter the kingdom, which is another way of saying the kingdom belongs to you. You participate in the kingdom. To enter the the kingdom, you must receive the kingdom as a child. So if you say it negatively, as Jesus does here, there's a significant weight to it. If you do not receive the proclamation of the kingdom, of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ, his person and mission, if you don't receive that as a child in a particular manner, then you won't enter his kingdom on the last day. You will not participate in it. The kingdom will not belong to you if you don't enter it in this manner, in this way. So this is not a casual word, right? I mean, this is not... Fly by the seat of your pants teaching here. This is important. This is significant. This is weighty. And that's why Jesus says, truly, we ought to sit up and listen to what he's saying here and the weight behind it. We're talking about eternal destinies that are at stake here in the manner in which we receive the proclamation of the kingdom through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The way we respond to Christ is important. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, the way he does it is interesting, right? He's using a metaphor. 
receive the kingdom as a child. He's not saying that you have to first come in contact with the proclamation of the kingdom before you can vote or buy cigarettes. That's, that's not what he's saying. You have to be under 18 before you can, you know, to, in order to receive the kingdom. He's, he's using a metaphor here. He's, he's making a, a point through a metaphor. He's saying that the qualities that characterize a child are the qualities that have to characterize you and I in the way that we receive God's kingdom, that we respond to the proclamation of his kingdom. Now, I know some of you are reading this and you're going, okay, what does that even mean to receive the kingdom as a child? Why, why is Jesus vague here? Why can't he just spell it out for us and say exactly what he means? Why does he use this metaphor here? Well, a metaphor is a great teaching tool. And what's amazing about a metaphor is that it forces you to think, right? You guys are probably already sitting there, either sleeping or thinking, hopefully thinking. And you're, you're thinking, okay, what does Jesus mean by this? To receive the kingdom as a child. What, what way does a child receive something that ought to characterize me? And so a metaphor forces you to think And when you sit there and you think about it and you process through it and you meditate on it, when the reality of the metaphor connects for you and when you start to understand the way in which a child receives something, there's a lot of power in that. And it brings about heart change as that metaphor connects to reality. And so that's what Jesus is doing here by using this metaphor. So we need to think about this. We need to ponder this. And I want to try to answer this for you using the gospel of Mark. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God as a child? This is important and weighty for us. Three answers to this question. First of all, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God as a child? Receive the kingdom as one who is in need. Here's the understatement of the millennium. You ready? Small children are needy. Particularly small children, children who are under the age of five. They are needy. If you have small children at home, you know this. We have several small children at home. Not all are under five, but our family recently has been laughing about the volume of questions that my wife Bethany gets on any given day and the variety of those questions. Have we not? We have. All sorts of questions all over the place, and they are constantly coming at her. Mom, can I get a drink of water? Mom, can I go outside? Mom, can I play with the dog? All sorts of things. And do you know what question dad gets asked? Where's mom? It's a beautiful thing. Children are needy. Think about my two-year-old. He's almost two. Be two in September. My two-year-old son, Gray. Maybe you don't know him, but think about how helpless most children are between the ages of one and two. I mean, this guy has lived for two years already, and he can't even make a pizza yet. (laughs) He is needy. We have to do almost everything for him. And you can see this neediness even in this story we're looking at. Look back up at verse 13. What do you notice about these children? Their their parents were bringing them to Jesus. They had to have someone bring them to him. They could not come on their own. They had to be guided, 
so they wouldn't go off the path, so they wouldn't end up in trouble. These children were dependent on other people in nearly every sense of the word. I mean, you can see that all the way back in chapter 9. The reason that Jesus uses children as an illustration of those who are least of these is because they are needy. You don't serve a child to get something in return, to get a cash prize at the end of it. It's not why you serve a child. And so what does that mean for us? That means when you and I come face to face with the claims of Jesus Christ regarding his rule and reign and his authority, regarding his kingdom, then you and I have to respond to that proclamation with a profound sense of our own neediness. We need him. We are dependent. We cannot do this on our own. One author described this as coming with no stellar religious resume. And I loved that. No stellar religious resume. When we hear the proclamation of the kingdom, that Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all, and there's authority in his word, and we ought to respond by submission and obedience, we don't respond to that by touting our own morality, our own goodness, or our own accomplishments. Look who I am. Look how good of a person I've been. Look what I have done. That is not the appropriate and proper response to the authority and the reign of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, that's exactly what the disciples were still doing. Remember, back in chapter 9, verse 34, they kept arguing with one another on the way about who was the greatest. They were touting their own accomplishments and who they were. They weren't coming as children who were needy in every sense of the word. That's the exact opposite of receiving the kingdom as a child, like a child. What does this sense of neediness look like? When I served as a college pastor in Virginia, I've told you before about the number of students that came to me struggling with assurance of salvation. They, were, they would profess Christ at a young age, and they were in this Christian college environment, and they would come back and think, man, I don't know for sure that I was really regenerate, that I was really saved at a young age. And so I would have to constantly talk people through this. I taught on it, try to help them understand it. And there was one guy in particular that just kept asking me about Assurance of salvation. And he wanted to know about the nature of faith. What is true faith? And how he could know that he had believed correctly when he was a child. That was his question. And so eventually we're talking about this over and over again. And I got to the point where I just said, look, I think true faith says something like this. Jesus, I am banking on the promises that you have given me in your word regarding your finished work. And I am banking on those promises, the forgiveness that you offer so much that if you don't save me in the end, then I am just going to hell. And that's the reality of the situation. And there's nothing else I can do about it. I'm free falling 100% and I'm throwing myself on you. And it is what it is. I think that's the sense of neediness that is true faith. And I think that is what coming to Christ, coming, responding to his kingdom as a child looks like. I can't do this on my own. And I know it. So I need someone else to do it for me. That's what it means. Coming to grips with our own neediness puts us in a place to respond properly to God's rule and reign, his authority. 
And neediness is closely connected to our second answer here. We receive in need, and we also receive in humility. These are very similar, but let me explain a little bit of the difference. People often think of humility as thinking poorly of myself. I'm really down on Nate, really down on myself. I think I'm a loser. That's not what humility is. Children have this simple, oftentimes, not every time, but they often have this simple humility about them where they rightly recognize who they are and their place. They don't put on pretenses, right? And I think that's what humility means. It's properly assessing yourself, knowing your place, knowing who you are, knowing what's true about you. What does that mean for receiving the kingdom? What do we have to know about ourselves in order to respond as a child? And respond to the kingdom appropriately. Well, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes on the scene. And this gives us a summary of his ministry. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And here's the response. Repent and believe in the good news, in the gospel. Repent, rightly assess your own situation, understand the sinfulness of your heart. Responding appropriately to the reality of Christ's reign and rule is saying, I acknowledge my sin. I don't have a religious resume and anything I do have is worth nothing in the eyes of a holy God. And I acknowledge my sin and I repent of it. I turn from my sin and I know I need Christ. And so I turn to him because he's the only one that can ultimately save me. And he's the only one that can bring me into the kingdom. I need him. The starting point is that God is holy transcendently holy. He's unique. There's no one else like him. He is free from stain and you and I are not. We are not free from stain. We are sinful. We are broken. We are messed up and we come prepackaged that way. And to belong to the kingdom, to receive the kingdom appropriately means that we humbly reckon with this reality that we are sinful Sinful and stained people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God in his kingdom. They cannot enter it. And the only way to come into his kingdom and to be cleansed from your sin is to come to Jesus Christ and know that you need his work to take your sin. You need what he did and you humbly cry out to him for his sacrifice to be applied to your account. That's receiving with humility. And that brings us to our third answer here. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God as a child? You receive in need. You receive with humility, recognizing who you are, your own sinfulness. And then you receive the kingdom as a gift. One of the great joys of parenting is occasionally being able to give your kids good gifts and watch them with unbridled joy open and embrace those gifts. There's very little that is more enjoyable than that. Children love gifts, if you have not noticed, and they receive them with excitement. Now, there's a difference in receiving an item that you paid for and receiving a gift. 
Your child may say thank you when he has saved his allowance money and he has purchased a new baseball glove and you go to the store and the clerk hands him the glove that he just paid for with his allowance money. He probably will say thankful, thank you, and he'll be appreciative of, of getting that new glove. But there's an entirely different sense and there's an entirely different reaction to receiving that glove out of the blue as a gift where he did not put anything into receiving it. In fact, he'd probably not been good at all the day before (laughs) that the glove came to him. He did nothing to earn that baseball glove. And we have to keep that difference in mind to appropriately receive the kingdom. We have to think of receiving this, receiving the work of Christ, receiving his rule and reign as a gift And that's one of the things I think it means to receive the kingdom as a child. Receive it as something you did not earn, you did not deserve, but it came to you as a gift. This has already been talked about in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 4.11, Jesus says this regarding understanding the kingdom. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It was given to them. They did not figure it out on their own knowledge and their own wisdom and their own savvy, it was given to them. It had to be given to them as a gift. It doesn't always seem that way, though. We don't always think of this as a gift, do we? I think a lot of times we go through life without consciously thinking of receiving the kingdom and participating in the kingdom and those realities as a gift. And we would all verbally affirm that, right? I mean, if I asked you one-on-one, is salvation a gift? Of course, we would say, yes, we know the Bible verses. We know it's a gift. But we don't always sense, we don't always feel like it is. It doesn't always impact who we are down to our gut, the same way that a child receiving a baseball glove does. Why is that? A gift is an act of grace. It's given with no obligation required in return. And I think deep down we fear that we don't think of the kingdom as a gift because we think we are somehow deserving of it. You would never affirm that, but somehow deep down we think we have to do something to earn it or we think I have done something to earn relationship with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We think we've done something to qualify us to receive the kingdom. So I want to try to help you this morning. I want to try to help myself to think of this kingdom offer as a gift of grace, as a gift, not something we've done to earn. So let's start with something that is lesser than the kingdom that you and I receive every single day as a gift. I know life on this earth is difficult at times. We all go through difficult things. Everyone does some more than others. We have sickness, There's pain, there's chronic pain, there's relational difficulties, and more. Every person in this room is experiencing some difficulty today and this week. And I know that. That is reality. But just stop for a moment. Don't discount those difficulties. They are there. They're part of life under the sun. But stop for a moment and think about the sheer extravagant goodness of God in the gifts that you and I receive every single day that we don't deserve, that are given to us out of the overflow of God's kindness and graciousness and goodness. The smell of coffee in the morning. 
with four little kids, Bethany and I say that is what gets us up in the morning. The smell of coffee coming down the hallway, a sunrise, the joy of little feet, whether grandkids or kids running down the hallway, the beauty of a song well played. What a gift music is to us to enjoy. The delicate petal of a rose. What did you and I do to earn, to deserve any of those things? Nothing, but we assume them all the time and we're frustrated if we don't get exactly what we want. We assume that we deserve those things. What did you do to earn the breath that you are taking right now and that you've taken over the last 60 seconds or the heart that is beating inside of you and that has been for years and years and years? What have we done to merit good family, good friends, good poetry, taking a nap, cinnamon rolls? I'm just trying to say every single day, every moment of the day, you and I are receiving extravagant good gifts in small ways from our Heavenly Father. And most of the time, much less seeing salvation as a gift, we don't even recognize those things as gifts to us. Our God is good. Matthew 5 describes a God who is so good that he lavishes his grace even on those who deny his existence. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons. You may be like your father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's so gloriously good that he gives a beautiful sunrise to people who think that he doesn't exist and live that way. So if all of these things are a gift from a good God, then how much more so is the kingdom and the offer of the kingdom an extravagant gift to you and I who do not deserve it? And that's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news that God is going to deliver us from sin and death and darkness. And he is going to remake this world, this world that we enjoy so much now, even though it's been broken by sin. He's going to remake this world and you and I will experience it in the future with him in his kingdom without sin, without the taint of corruption. And the sunrises will be even more glorious and the coffee will be even better. And that's the promise of the gospel is freedom from sin and relationship with Jesus Christ in his kingdom for all of eternity. And that is a gift that you and I did nothing to merit and nothing to earn. And he doesn't do that as some sort of repayment for all the wonderful things you and I have done for him, how good we've been this week. He does those things because he is good and because he is love and because he wants us to know him and to live in relationship with him and delight in the kingdom and the one who gives the kingdom to us. So how do we receive the kingdom? As children who are needy, who are humble, and who are receiving a gift that they did nothing to earn or deserve. I loved how one commentator summed this up. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring, and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness 
rather than by any merit inherent in himself and him or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. And so when we receive the kingdom, if you've not received the kingdom this morning, I would encourage you to recognize your need, recognize your sin humbly, and come to God as one who cannot earn this gift, but it has been given through Jesus Christ. If you have received the kingdom and you're experiencing that reality now, I would say go back to these three mentalities receiving the kingdom as a child, and walk your journey with these mentalities. Remember what it is to come needy, humble, and receive a gift. And let that influence how you walk every single day in your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you know what's really cool about this passage? Is Jesus does this teaching, gives it to the disciples, and then look at the demonstration he gives of this in verse 16. Mark 10, back in verse 16. You talk about a God of grace, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the Jesus that we know and love. It's the Jesus who receives the least of these, those who are needy, humble, and need a gift. He receives them with grace, and he takes them in his arms, and he blesses them. So when Jesus calls to us, come with empty hands, humble hearts, and rejoice in the gift of his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for even making the possibility of us entering into your kingdom a reality. As we've talked about this morning, we are not worthy. We have nothing to offer. We only bring our sin and our corruption We only bring our need, we only bring empty hands, and yet you have, in your extravagant love, given us so many temporal gifts, and you've also given us the ultimate gift, Jesus Christ, the King, crucified for us on the cross, risen from the dead, bringing us with him in new life, and ascended to the Father where he rules and reigns, and one day we'll see that kingdom fully come on this earth. To help us as we participate in that kingdom now, as we seek to proclaim the reality of that kingdom, help us to do it with neediness, with humility, and with rejoicing in your goodness. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.